much for that. Matthew chapter 14, well, the young people are dismissed today, uh, going back to the classes of their level. If you're visiting with us, you have children. We uh, have uh, classes for them in the back there, or, or a class, Children's Church, we call it, and um, appreciate the even so much making themselves available for that, because as you can tell, we dismiss the kids like a third of our congregation disappears, Amen. So uh, we're glad to have you here. want to welcome little Hannah today, John and Carissa's baby. Just how many days old now? Two weeks. Amen. Beautiful, beautiful baby there. Great, grateful to have them with us today as well. Matthew chapter 14. Uh, Isaac's storm is uh, the, what they called the hurricane that wiped out Galveston, Texas in 1900. Uh, Brother West remembers that when it happened. Uh, everyone, everyone was convinced that a hurricane would never strike Galveston, even as one approached. Despite the fact that the storm was on the way, people went about their business like nothing was wrong. Uh, even as the streets began to flood, children were playing in the water, uh, men gathered for breakfast at the local diner, no one fled from the storm that was about to strike. The cause of this apathy was Isaac Klein. He was the national weather representative there in Galveston. He assured them that it would not be a severe storm. In fact, it was largely because of him that many believed Galveston was invincible. In 1891, he wrote an article in the Galveston Daily News, and he gave his official opinion that the hurricane, a hurricane doing serious damage in Galveston, it was a crazy idea. The reason he wrote that is because residents had called for a seawall to protect the city. And uh, Klein's statement helped prevent its construction. People assured themselves nothing bad would happen. Between 6,000 and 12,000 people were killed in what remains the deadliest natural disaster in U.S. history. Now, we've been looking at the fruit of the Spirit as it is demonstrated in the life of Christ. We've broken them all down and talked about each one of them uh, for us, but now looking at them in the life of Christ. You see, all that is expected of us is perfected in the, love of Christ, in the life of Christ. We see him as the supreme example. And so he does not ask us to do what we, he does not do himself. And as we look at these fruits of the Spirit, we've been using them to gauge our growth, because that's what we want to encourage people to do this year is grow, and those are the marks on the door to gauge the growth of our spiritual life. These, these spiritual, uh, or, or sorry, these fruits of the Spirit. They are love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. It's instructive for us to realize, too, that they are intertwined with one another. As I mentioned several times before, it's not like a menu you choose from at a restaurant. You don't pick one and leave aside the other. They are intertwined. They should all be growing at the same time. That's why the Bible refers to them as fruit singular of the Spirit. There's different aspects, but it's one fruit. They should all be growing in our life. Now, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul said, listed a number of different things, and he said the greatest of these is love. And that is really the bedrock for all that we are and for all that we do. Love is the engine that drives the growth in all these other areas. John 13, 35. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. How is this illustrated? Well, 
Joy is love exalted. Peace is love in response. Long-suffering is love enduring. A gentleness is love in society. Goodness is love in action. Faith is love on the battlefield. Meekness is love in tough situations. And temperance is love in training. Each one of these fruits uh, ought to be expanding in your life. So how are you doing? How, uh, hopefully this has been a challenge as, you, as we've been going through these different ones. And I hope that it uh, encourages you toward growth as it does me. Today I want to talk to you about peace. The peace of Jesus. Specifically, we're going to talk about a storm. Now I realize if you've been in church any amount of time, you've probably heard 50 messages on storms. <laughs> we talk about the, uh, is a great, great passage to preach from. I've heard many, many messages on storms. So if you indulge me today though, for number 51, I hope I can show you something that'll be a help to you uh, from another, just another aspect of this uh, story in uh, Matthew. The lesson that we can learn from Galveston is this. A storm's coming. There will be storms in your Christian life. You're either just out of one, headed into one, or smack dab in the middle of one. Uh, we, are all, we all experience storms in our life. And the very worst thing we can do is to think that none is ever coming. Because it will. Things will happen. That's just life. We best be prepared for them. Now, if you have your Bible, I want to read this text, and I want you to, I want this morning to observe more than the storm. I want to pull back the lens, if you will, just a little bit and see uh, the whole day in which all this went down. It'll help us to identify <coughs> where the disciples were. Let's start reading in verse number 15 of Matthew 14. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a desert place and the time is now past. Send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. Jesus said unto them, They need not depart. Give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, We have here but five loaves and two fishes. He said, Bring them hither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass, and took the five loaves and two fishes, looking up to heaven. He blessed, he brake. He gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled. They took up all the fragments that remained twelve baskets full. Now just think about that for a second. He had this kid with a sack lunch and he fed 5,000 men and their families and they had 12 baskets left over. That's in answer to the 12 disciples who said, we don't have nothing to feed them. Jesus said, not only are we going to feed them, I'll give you guys each a basket of take home. Amen? That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Amazing miracle. Verse 21, and they had eaten were about 5,000 men beside women and children. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. When he had sent the multitudes away, went up in the mountain to part to pray, and when evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, that's 3 to 6 a.m., the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. When he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink and, said, and cried, saying, Lord, save me. 
And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased. That's our text verse. Read it again. And when they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased. The peace of Jesus. Father, I pray you'd help us this morning. Apply this passage to our life and the principles that we learn. Help it to improve our walk with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's get the scene here just to get a good picture of what's happening here. John the Baptist has just been murdered. He's been beheaded at the whim of a princess. You know that story. And, and this was Jesus' cousin. No doubt they were very close. They'd grown up together, or at least known of each other. And, and uh, then, of course, John, Jesus had went to John for his baptism. And, and John baptized him knowing who he was. John would have seen the Spirit come down that day and announce this as his beloved son. They were very close. So in verse 13, we didn't read it, but if you jump up a few verses, you see that uh, Jesus and his disciples decided they would take a vacation day. They had been burning the candle on both ends, and uh, they needed some time to get apart and rest and, and to really to grieve because of what happened to D Jesus' dear friend and cousin. And uh, I, I, may, I could add this morning that it's an important thing for us. We need at times to step away. Taking a vacation is a good thing. Taking a break from our labors is something that even Jesus Christ did. Uh, I heard a preacher one time, because pastors sometimes get a little bit of flack, because you'll, we'll hear things like, does the devil ever take a vacation? And uh, I heard one preacher give the perfect answer to that. He said, no, he doesn't, and he's not my example. Amen? So, uh, I believe it's a good thing to take a vacation. Vance Havner said, if you don't come apart and rest, you're going to come apart. And we need that. They needed that. I read a story of a couple in South Dakota who decided to take a vacation to Florida in the middle of the winter. That's a good idea. Amen? Go to Florida in the middle of the winter. Uh, the wife was on a business trip, though, so she couldn't go with the husband. She planned to fly and meet him there the next day. Well, the, wife, uh, the husband got there the, a day early, and uh, he reached his hotel. He decided to send his wife a quick email. Uh, unfortunately, when typing the address, he missed one letter, and his note was directed instead to an elderly pastor's wife who had just lost her husband the day before. He passed away. So when the grieving widow checked her email, she let out a piercing scream and fell to the floor in a dead faint. Family rushed over to see if she was okay, and they saw this note on the screen. Dearest wife, I just checked in. Everything is prepared for your arrival tomorrow. P.S. It sure is hot down here. Now, everybody needs a vacation, amen, once in a while. Some more than others. This is where Jesus was. He needed some time apart. The disciples needed some time apart. But the problem was when they got there, the crowds had followed Jesus and had wanted, they needed to be ministered to, and it's important to understand this because we got to grab the mindset of the disciples. All right, they were already tired. This was a vacation day. Imagine you took a day off, Brother John, and just as you're about to cast a line in the water, oh, nope, sorry, you got to work today. You got to go back and get busy. This was an example here of disrupted rest. This here is 
where R&R becomes riffraff and routine. I mean, they were not able to rest at all. But it gets worse. The disciples watch as Jesus ministers to scores of people, healing them, encouraging them. And finally, as evening mercifully draws nigh, they come to Jesus and they said, Hey, Jesus, for crying out loud, we got to get rid of these people. They're getting hungry. I.e., we're getting hungry. All right? We need to do something with these crowds. Jesus said, They need not depart. Give ye them to eat. <laughs> they, uh, Peter, what did he say? Well, he said, We're going to feed these freeloaders. Uh, well, that's, uh, that's news to us because we don't have any food. And so there's no way we can do it. And they come to Jesus. Jesus, listen, we're sorry, but all we have is one boy and he's, he's got a Lunchable. So we have like 5,000 men and their families and all we got's a Lunchable. Jesus said, bring them hither to me. And with that little Lunchable, he fed 5,000 men and their families. Amazing miracle. There's a whole message there. What can Jesus do with your little lunch? What can he do with your life, with your talent? Though it be small, what can he do with it? You know, a basketball in my hands is worth about $25. A basketball in a LeBron James hands is worth $75 million. All depends on whose hands it's in. A baseball in my hands is worth about $8. A baseball in Jacob deGrom's hands is worth about $27 million. Depends on whose hands it's in. A slingshot in my hands is just a kid's toy. Trust me, I've tried, and it's just a kid's toy. A slingshot in David's hands kills giants. Depends on whose hands it's in. Uh, fish, a couple of fish, a couple of biscuits, a Lunchable, will feed, will, will do nothing in my hands. It's a couple of muckfish sandwiches, you know. But in Jesus' hands, it feeds thousands. A couple of nails in my hands will build a birdhouse. A couple of nails in Jesus' hands brings salvation to the whole world. Depends on whose hands it's in. Hey, you put your little in Jesus' hands, and he'll turn it out to be much. That's a great message we get there. So here they were. They're tired. It's their day off. Now they have to feed people. All of a sudden, Jesus' demeanor changes. I think this is interesting because... All day they've been wanting to get out or get these people out. We need to get away from them. We are trying to get some rest here. But here it says now, all of a sudden, verse 22, and straightway, that means immediately, forthwith. Jesus constrained, that means compelled, to drive by force, even with threats. He constrained his disciples to get into his ship and go before him on the other side while he sent the multitudes away. All of a sudden... Jesus flicks, uh, flips a switch. They've been wanting to get rid of the multitude. Jesus, no, 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 you feed them. Let's just keep fellowshipping here. Don't you love to keep fellowshipping when you're tired, you know? And uh, they said, no, we'll just keep saying. And all of a sudden, Jesus said, oh, get in the ship. I'll send the multitudes away. He just changed. What, what happened to change this? Well, there's a sudden realization that came to him that makes him say, okay, boys, it's time to go. The answer is found in John chapter 6, a parallel passage here. It says that then those men, when they seen the miracle that Jesus did, that's the feeding, said, this is of a truth, the prophet that should come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again into a mountain. So what Jesus is seeing, and he sees this presumably before the disciples do, or hears these rumblings, and he thinks, "Uh uh-oh, because the disciples, if you remember, 
were the kind of guys who argued constantly about who's the greatest. The night before Jesus was crucified, you know what they're doing? I'm the greatest. No, no, no. What are you talking about? I'm the greatest. I went to college. You don't have a degree. You didn't even go to high school. And they're talking about who does, who's the greatest and who's the best. So Jesus knew that if they got word that he was going to be king, who do you think is going to be in his administration? This would be right down their line of thinking, and he got them out of there. I, I think it's interesting because the disciples, though they would be all over it, this is not why Jesus came. Jesus came, the Bible says, to seek and to save that which was lost. He came not to be a sovereign, but to be a sacrifice. He came uh, not to rule an empire, but to win hearts. So Jesus had to get him out of there. And the Bible says he constrained him. He booted him into a ship. And he told him, go over to the other side. And he sent them, don't miss this, right into a storm. Jesus knew what was going to happen. He's Jesus. He's God. Sent him right into a storm. Now, there are different types of storms. There are storms of judgment. Think the storm of uh, Noah. That, that was a storm of judgment. There's a corrective storm. That would be like the storm we find in Jonah, where God had to correct his servant. And then there are development storms. I believe that's the one we see in our text here. Remember, they were in God's will. They were doing what they were supposed to do, and a storm still came. Just because you're in a storm, friend, doesn't mean you did anything wrong specifically. Sometimes that's the case, but sometimes it's not. Jesus knew, this is what's interesting here in this passage, Jesus knew they would be safer in the storm that he sent than in their own selfishness if they were left to their own devices back where they were. Can I tell you today, friends, that if we're left to our own devices, the storms that we create for ourselves are far worse than the storms that he creates for us. Primarily because where he can control his storm, we cannot control our storm ever. So he sends them. And from his perspective, everything's okay. In their perspective, it's a disaster. But in his perspective, it's fine. Why? Because he controls the storm. And we can see that here in a few minutes. Now, here they are in the fourth watch of the night. That's 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., as I mentioned before. They'd worked hard all night. Remember, the day before, the morning of the day before, they were tired and take a vacation day. And then they had to deal with people all day. And then that evening, they had to feed 10,000, 15,000 people. They would be even more tired. Did they get to go to bed? No, 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 no. They had to now get into a ship, go to the other side, and now they've been hours and hours fighting a storm. They're exhausted. Have you ever noticed that storms come in your life when it's not convenient? You ever noticed that? That's the nature of storms. We have a beautiful picture of the church here today. While this is going on, Jesus is in a mountain praying. Presumably, he's praying for them. Uh, he was concerned about them. Uh, he, today, Jesus is in heaven interceding for you and I while we fight the storms of life here on earth. His coming seems a long time away, and yet at the darkest hour, he came to them when they needed him the most. Jesus sees the situation that you and I are in, and I can assure you that there will be storms and he will know about it, and he's in control of them. Isn't that a blessing? There will be storms. And so let's continue on the story here. Uh, they, were, they were in the storm not because they disobeyed Christ, but because they obeyed him. we got to keep that in mind here. If we obey the word of God, there will still be suffering. 
There will still be storms, but Christ is praying for us through them and he will come uh, when the time is right. As they're fighting this storm out in the darkness, they see a figure. I always try to picture how this would be. You know, sailors and their stories and, and all their... Uh, their, their sailors are very... Um, they're, they're, they, they believe in a lot of weird stuff. Sailors do. A lot of sailors do anyway. So they would have heard all the kind of stories about what happens on the ocean. And now they look out and they see a figure walking on the water. The waves, and this is what we're going to see in our life too, the waves are all over the place. So the waves are, are rocking the boat. They're trying to upset everything they're doing. I don't think Jesus is doing a bunch of acrobatics to stay on the waves, though. The way I see Jesus walking is calmly. So they look out past all the waves that are beating on their ship and tall and, and uh, crashing against each other, and they see a figure walking across there calmly. Now, there's a good picture there because what's distressing to them is under his feet, totally under his control. But here, the point I want to make is to notice the wording here in our text. After they got back in the boat, the storm ceased. Now, there must have been some distance that Peter walked on the water. When he sank, or started to sink, he was right by Jesus because Jesus just reached out his hand and helped him right back up again. So, he had walked all the way to Jesus. Now, the question is, how far out from the ship were they? I don't think they were that close. Maybe the width of our parking lot, the length of our parking lot, the, the length of our church. He was not right by the ship. But when he began to sink, he went from walking like Jesus was to all of a sudden teetering because of the waves and he started to go down. He took his eyes off Christ and put them on the waves. Anytime, friend, your surroundings loom larger in your heart than your Savior, you're going to sink. Anytime you let circumstances take control, the same thing happened in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Everybody's looking at the giant. The whole Israeli army is looking at the giant and they look at him and say, wow, he's huge. There's no way that I could fight him and if, if, uh, if, if me and him fought, I'd lose for sure. Meanwhile, David looks at the giant as compared to his God and he says, wow, that guy's small. There's no way that I could lose the battle, me and God and him. See what I'm saying? You put your eyes on the Lord and it'll help you through those storms. So here's Peter, and all of a sudden he's overwhelmed with where he is and what's going on around him, and he starts to sink. Jesus got Peter's attention back on himself. Hey, 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 Peter, I'm right here. Helps him up, asks him why he doubted. The secret of overcoming the storm is simply to believe the Word of God and keep your eyes on the Son of God, and it'll help you. Yet, even when we fail, thank God, Jesus graciously helps us. Years later, Peter would write down in 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. I wonder if you didn't think back to that time on the waves. Now, I'm getting to my point, main point here, but I just want to mention something here. He's back on top of the water. Jesus has lifted him up. Have you ever been a victim 
of Bible misconceptions. A few years ago, I was preaching on Easter. And uh, it's talking about Jesus, what he went through. And <clears throat> I mentioned in the message that Jesus had, uh, under the cross, was laboring under the cross, and he, and he fell. And then he got back up and kept going, and then they got Simon to help him. And uh, so after the service, I was in the back, and one of the men in the, that, that was there that day came over and said, i got a question for you. Where in the Bible does it say that Jesus fell? I, mean, I saw it in a movie once. You know, I had to think for a second. You know what? It doesn't. It doesn't say he fell. I'm not saying he didn't, but it doesn't say he did. But for years, we've been saying it. It's a Bible misconception. What about, uh, what about this one? Mary Magdalene was a harlot. That's a Bible misconception. The Bible never says she was. She was healed of demons. Uh, but way back in 590 A.D., Pope Gregory I, he was the first one to call her a harlot. And since then, it's become such a Christian vernacular thing, that's the way we've looked at her. Uh, how about this one? This is a big one. The animals went into the ark two by two, right? Well, no, they didn't. Uh, in Genesis, Genesis chapter 7, verse 2, the Bible says that all the clean animals went in by sevens. Only the unclean animals went in by twos, and according to Jewish law, there's many, many more clean animals than there are unclean animals. And so most more animals are on the ark by sevens than were on there by twos. There's another uh, Bible misconception. The, the Gospels were written by the disciples. Most people would say, yes, the Gospels were written by the disciples. No. Only two were written by disciples, Matthew and John. Uh, the other books of Mark and Luke were written by men who never even knew Jesus, or at least not well. Mark would have likely been in his teens when Jesus was in Jerusalem. Uh, he may have seen and listened to him on occasion, it's possible. After the resurrection, he traveled with the Apostle Paul. Then he stayed with Peter in Rome, uh, stayed by him while he's in prison. Mark was known as Peter's interpreter. As a Galilean fisherman, Peter would not have spoken Greek uh, fluently, so Mark interpreted for him. In his book, Mark wrote down the observations and memories of Peter, one of the original apostles. And it's interesting, Mark being the book to the Gentiles is a reflection of Peter taking the gospel to the Gentiles. We see that all work together there. Luke is written, uh, he's an interesting writer because he did not know Jesus Christ personally. Uh, he became a believer after Jesus' death when Paul taught him the gospel. Luke had been a physician, but he left that profession to travel with Paul. He talked with many of the other apostles and he was, uh, he was, uh, who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' life. In fact, if you start reading the book of Luke, you'll see in the first couple of verses he says, I'm going to write basically like an interview. I'm writing down what witnesses, eyewitnesses to Jesus' life have to say. One of the most amazing stories in the Gospels is the story of Jesus' birth. We read it every year, Luke chapter 2. Uh, I, I, uh, I believe with all my heart, Luke got that information about Jesus' birth from Mary herself as she relayed what, G what God did. But Bible misconceptions. Here's one I've had. That Peter steps out of the boat. The boat's right here. Okay, Step out of the boat. Jesus is right here. He steps out and takes a step, starts to sink. Jesus helps him. They step back in the boat. That's just kind of a picture of it. I haven't really thought it through. I don't believe that's the case at all. When they saw Jesus, he was a ways out. They saw him from a distance. 
and uh, he was probably a, quite a way from the boat. Why is that an important distinction? Because it leads to a question I have this morning, main point of this message today, when did Peter's peace begin? When did Peter say, breathe a sigh of relief? Say, whew, that's better. I want you to take notice in verse 32 again. And when they came, were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Did you catch that? Only after they came in the ship did the storm stop. That means they took a walk on the wild waves. Uh, they had to come back to the ship. Here they are, walking together on the waves. It is not a balancing act on the waves. It's a calm, controlled walk with the Savior on the way back to the waves. I submit to you today that Peter's peace did not come when he was in the boat and the storm stopped. I submit to you today that Peter's peace began on the way back to the boat. The storm is still raging. It's still going on. But Peter is now at peace because, friend, real peace does not come dependent on your circumstances. It does not come when everything is going right. Peace is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of God in that conflict. And friend, your peace does not depend on your circumstances. It won't. Because I'll say again, hate to be the bearer of bad news, but we're going to go through storms. You're going to go through a storm if you are not right now. Now you might say, oh no, preacher, I'm going to do everything right. I'm going to live right. I'm going to do right. I'm going to obey God. And I'm not going to have any of those storms. Can I remind you again? They were in God's will. They were doing what God said. And they had storms. We tend to think if I do everything right, I won't face trouble. That's not, that's not the way life works. Amen? Uh, we got to face that right off. See, by the very nature of storms, they're unmanageable. And you will have them. And when you will have storms, you will not be able to control them. You will need help to navigate them. Last week, youth conference, it was hot. 102, 103 throughout the day. I found out in the evening it was all about the nines. At 9 p.m. it was 99 degrees. It was hot. It just wouldn't let up. On Wednesday we went to Frontier City, an amusement park. My dad was there with me this week and we spent, got to spend a lot of time together. It was a blessing. <coughs> he had his wheelchair, his uh, motorized wheelchair to help him get around and and we were at Frontier City, and it was a scorcher of a day. While we were scooting back and forth there, went on a couple of little rides, and we came to this uh, shower head, kind of out in the middle of nowhere, uh, was just running so that if you needed to kind of cool down a little bit, uh, you could step under it. And so, point I'm trying to make here is that was, that's a manageable storm. You know, it's just some water falling, but... I could get under it. Whoo, yeah, oh, that feels good. Uh, get some of that heat away from you. Go under it again. Whoo, and it get out, and it's, it, it felt great because it was so hot. Needed a little bit of relief. Wasn't so manageable for my dad because he drives a chair that doesn't work in wet ground. And so he thought, you know what? I'm hot too. I'm going to get just a little bit of that. And so he drove under it as well, but he got stuck <laughs> because he couldn't, 
Because all of a sudden, he's on wet ground. Now he's stuck under there. It was hilarious. You say, didn't you help him, Pastor? Of course I did. Not a monster. After I took this picture, I helped him. And if you think I'm mean, can I remind you, he used to spank me. Me. Innocent. Sometimes. Once, okay? But anyway, that's not a storm. If you can control it, it's not a storm. Right? Storms are uncontrollable. Your storm may fill you with uncertainty and fear. Maybe there's hurt and pain and agony. You don't know what the future is going to bring. In short, you're not in control. And you try, oh, but you try to get a handle on the situation. But it's beyond your ability to remedy. And when you can't do something about something, it's a very frustrating place to be. The idea is, here's your life. You're teetering. I mean, it's, there's turmoil. There's waves. And there's all kinds of troubles coming in your life. And you didn't bring it on. You didn't ask for it. But it's here. And then here's Jesus in control of the situation. Able to walk on top of the waves that are threatening to take you down. The waves don't throw him off balance. In fact, the very thing that's threatening your peace is, is his footpath. Amen. The best thing you can do is call out to him. I like what Peter did. Oh, this is so good If I, when I saw this in Scripture. Peter did not cup his hands and yell out to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, if that's you, can you do something about this storm? That's not what he did. Isn't that interesting? Uh, you'd think that would be the primary thing on his mind, but it wasn't. He said, Jesus, if that's you, I want to come out to be with you. I want to be next to you in this storm. Now that's the cry we ought to give. He says, Lord, if it's you, bid me come. And I like Jesus' long-winded response. Come on then. Come, he said, if you want to come. Peace did not come to Peter when Jesus stopped the storm. Peace came to Peter when he was with Jesus. And that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to be with him. Because peace is not the absence of problems, but the presence of God. And that's what we ought to keep in mind. The same was true for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember that story? The three asbestos Jews wouldn't bow, bend, break, or burn. Uh, they wouldn't bow down to the, to the king's idol. So the king had this furnace heated up and, and uh, had them bound uh, hand and foot. And he had some big old beefy guys go and throw them into the furnace because they wouldn't uh, worship his image. Uh, only peace. By the way, were they scared? Probably scared to death. When did peace start for them? When they got out of that fire? I don't think so. You know what happened when they were in the fire? First of all, the ropes burned off. Whole message in there. Sometimes it takes a little bit of heat in your life to break you free from things that are binding you. Different message for different day, but good point. So here they are walking around in the fire, and you got Mr. King rubbing his eyes, looking in there. Didn't we, uh, didn't we throw three guys in there? There's four in there right now. Typically, fire doesn't birth people. It burns people, all right? It was a little confusing. We threw three, now there's four. The fourth is likened to the Son of God. When did their peace begin? I believe it began when Jesus showed up. Fire's still raging, still roaring around them. 
But I just happened to think they were having a good old-fashioned revival in there with the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is not the absence of a storm. It's not the absence of a fire. It's the presence of the Lord. That's where peace is at. And in your storm, peace will not come by the removal of circumstances. Peace comes when you draw close to your Savior. He lifts you up as you start to sink. And in your, and then you can walk together. It doesn't matter if life is still all turmoil. It doesn't matter if the waves are all around you trying to throw you over. It doesn't matter if circumstances are still against you. You can rise above them because you're with your Savior and you can walk calmly and peacefully over those waves. That is the peace of Christ. That's the peace of Jesus. Then in almost in addition to the story, verse 32, it, it's almost like a by the way, like an addendum. Oh, by the way, and, and the wind ceased. You know, sometimes he'll deliver you from your storm. But many times he'll walk with you through your storm. Either way, that's the peace of Jesus. You need to have him close to you. Either way, you'll have peace. When we talk about peace, it is not meaning everything's going perfectly. It's talking about who has our hand and who's with us in life. Do you today, friend, have the peace of Jesus in your life? Are you in the middle of turmoil? Are you in a storm? Have you been fighting those waves and just waiting on some assistance in your spiritual life? I invite you today to get a good taste of the peace of Jesus. Let's pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we ask you today to work in hearts. If there's anybody here that needs to respond, pray that they would do so. Lord, there are many issues and problems and heartaches and struggles represented in this room today. Help us to know at the core of our heart that we're not alone in it. I pray, Lord, you'd bless this altar call now as we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Keep your heads bowed, eyes closed if you'll stand along with me.